Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to a special episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting for Thursday, July 16th, the Mom and Dad are Fighting Teacher Roundtable. We're doing something a little bit different this week. Jamila and Elizabeth are off. It's just me. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate. The author of the book, How to Be a Family, and I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 15, and Harper, who's 12. We live in Arlington, Virginia. If you're looking for triumphs and fails, we're moving those to the Slate Plus segment this week, because this week our whole episode is devoted to the coming school year. We're basically T-minus four weeks until some kids start going back to school in some fashion. But what will school look like? It's still extremely up in the air. Some districts are attempting business as usual. L.A., among others, has gone all virtual. Some places are giving parents options. The messaging is all over the place. My school district made one announcement in June and just an hour ago sent everyone an email completely changing their minds. Obviously, many parents want their kids to go back to school. We want them to learn. We want them to see their friends. We want them to be out of the fucking house so we can work. At this point, even a lot of kids are bored and ready to get back to normal or however close to normal we can get. But we're also scared for their health, for our health, for everyone's health, and we're angry that the country hasn't done the shit it needs to do to make school a priority. The Trump administration has made it clear how they feel about the issue, from the president's tweet to Betsy DeVos threatening schools that don't open full-time with defunding. But it sort of seems like there's one group out there that I haven't heard as much from as I might want to, and that's the teachers. What do teachers want their jobs to look like in the coming school year? What kind of guidance are they getting? What kind of options do they have? And how are teachers talking with each other about the position that our country has put them in? I've asked four teachers to join me this week to talk candidly about what it's like to be a teacher facing the great unknown of fall 2020. They're all writers for Slate's Ask a Teacher column, so let's welcome them all here. To start with, we have Cassie Sarnell, who is an early childhood special education teacher in Albany, New York. Hi, Cassie. We have Brandon Hersey, who teaches second grade in Federal Way, Washington, and is also on the Seattle School Board. Hey, Brandon. What's going on? Happy to be here. We've got Matthew Dix, who's a fifth grade teacher in West Hartford, Connecticut. Hey, Matt. How you doing, Dan? And we have Amy Scott, an eighth grade English teacher in Durham, North Carolina. Hi, Amy. Hi, Dan. Thank you all very much for being here. You're all talking to your colleagues and friends. Let's just go through each of you, and I want you to give me, to start off, in three words or fewer... How would you characterize the emotional state of teachers right now? Matt, you go first. (laughs) Well, my wife is also a teacher, a kindergarten teacher. And today she told me she was frightened and angry. I think I probably possess a little bit of those two things as well as hopeful. I think I'm more hopeful, frankly, than my wife is. All right. Cassie? I'm going to go with frustrated, scared, and sad. Brandon? Confused as fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Amy. I was going to say disappointed, but given what I know about the Trump administration, I'm not disappointed because you'd have to have an expectation in order to be disappointed. And so 
I guess I'll say I'm disappointed by the idea that we could be going back to school safely based on other countries' plans and outcomes, and we're not. Mm -hmm. That's more than three words, but I'll take it. Sorry about that. (laughs) All right. So can each of you please tell us where your school system stands right today, where you as a teacher, what you know about your fall 2020. We're recording Tuesday, July 14th. Maybe they've made a decision yet. Maybe they haven't. But let's start with Brandon. What is your school district plan for the coming year? Yeah. So in federal way, we have not received any real update upon what school is going to look like, but we do know that we're going to be expected to come back in some way, shape, or form. I think that we are playing around with the idea of the AB model. And for those of you who might not know, it's this idea that 50% of the kids will come to school on Monday, Tuesday, the other 50% will come on Thursday, Friday, maybe, and Wednesday will be kind of a check-in day, um, mostly virtual. While a lot of folks are talking about this model, as cases continue to spike and we're starting to see more and more documents internally and externally come out of the CDC around how dumb of an idea it is to send kids back in any real strong capacity, especially in terms of protecting cases from spiking again, those decisions are changing. As you alluded to just earlier, Dan, you just received an email not too long ago completely changing their mind. And I don't know what the context is of that. But when I say that, like, a lot of us are confused as fuck, I honestly mean that because it is really difficult to know in what direction I need to be heading as an educator without having a clear and consistent plan from the district. Amy, what's the story in Durham? What's the plan right now? So the school where I am right now, it's planning to be fully remote K-8 for 30 days. And then to go to what Brandon was talking about with like the AB, you know, Monday, Tuesday, they would sanitize on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday kind of thing. It is still up in the air. Nothing is board approved. And who knows, things could change in a moment. Matt, what's the story in Connecticut? Well, my kids and the district that I teach are different, but the plans are essentially the same. Right now, as of this moment, we're going back full time. Uh, We're in Connecticut, so the infection rate is actually the lowest in the country right now. And I have not seen a person in public not wearing a mask where I live. So people are taking it very seriously here. And as a result, we're in a better position, I think, than in a lot of places in the country. So we are offering full-time school at school and also full-time distance learning. And parents can choose between the two. I think that's going to be important anyway, because we're going to have to have distance learning for any child who can't sort of be in a space because they're compromised in some way, or teachers, frankly. But I think what I've been telling my teacher friends is that sort of everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. You know, that famous Mike Tyson quote, (laughs) because we have a thousand teachers in our school district and what will happen 100% will be a kid or a teacher will die over the course of the school year. And when a kid or a teacher dies, everything is going to change. And so I think whatever we're thinking is going to happen now is is lovely. And I think it's fine to put plans into place. But I think it's going to be a very moving target that we're going to constantly probably be missing along the way. Cassie, what's the story in Albany? I'm in a bit of a different boat than everyone else here because I teach preschool. So I don't work in one district I work with. I mean, my class this past year was three, but up to 20 different school districts at my school. We're in the capital region, which is a couple counties in upstate New York. Our infection rate is low. We're at like about 1%. And things are okay here. It's funny though, because the way you framed the question, what is the plan now? And my brain was like summer school, because 
Albany County and Columbia County and Rensselaer County are the three that I work with primarily are all open in person for summer school in some capacity. Not every school, my preschool where I work, because we work with a lot of immunocompromised kids, we are not open in person fully. We are looking at options for some amount of outdoor in-person therapy for speech or for physical therapy or for OT. But right now, every district that I'm working with, they are all submitting plans to the Department of Health. They are all in the process of figuring out how to open in-person they're all very secretive. None of them will say what their plan is. Nobody has any information out. But I think for a lot of them, it's either going to be like an A, B plan, like Brandon and Amy mentioned, or some kind of fully in person for the smaller, because I, I work with towns that have like 3000 people in them. So like those smaller schools might be able to get away with it. Right now, we are hypothetically speaking operational for summer school. And uh, like I am holding my breath waiting for the news that something has happened. And it's terrible. <laughs> Oh, that holding your breath, waiting for the news that, that you have mentioned and, and this question of what happens, you know, when someone dies that Matthew brought up, I think seems very crucial because one thing I don't know about and that no one in my kid's school district has given me any sense of is that there is a plan for what happens when, say, someone tests positive, when a teacher tests positive or a student or a student's dad, which is another way of saying, is there any kind of benchmark for when a school shuts down or changes their policy? Inside of your districts where you teach, have you been given any kind of guidance as to what that future planning looks like, or is it all sort of up in the air still? I know that in our school district, one of the goals we have is to sort of bubble kids. And so the teacher and the students are going to remain as isolated from the rest of the school as possible. So that if I have a class of 20 kids and one of my kids or I or one of the parents tests positive, that group of kids theoretically can then enter quarantine. And if the teacher's healthy, we can begin distance learning for the two to three weeks that we're going to decide quarantine is necessary and then come back into the school, theoretically having not contaminated anyone else in the process. I stress the word theoretically because I'm not quite sure how that is possible given the physical space that we occupy, but you know, I think it's a reasonable attempt by the school district to maintain school in the event that someone tests positive. By the way, I mean, the testing positive, I mean, at this point, I know that it's seven days to get a positive test in our state right now. So if you actually get a test, it is seven days later. I mean, we saw the mayor of Atlanta, it took her eight days to get a test positive. And in that time, she managed to infect her family and half her staff unknowingly, simply because it took eight days for the mayor of Atlanta to get her test back. So I'm not quite sure how testing is going to make any difference when it comes to schooling. There has been some guidance from, I think it was the New York State Department of Health, that children with autism may be at higher risk of infection, not because of anything inherent regarding their diagnosis, but because young children with autism are more likely to be mouthing things, licking things, putting things in their mouth, touching their own faces, etc. And one of the reasons when they announced to us that although the state has allowed us to be open, our school is not going to open, we knew that we were going to get some parent backlash, and so we all sort of demanded reasons from the admin so that when the parents yell at us that we're not opening, even though we theoretically could, we would have a reason. And the admin said they just can't think of a way to make it safe. You know, I taught in a class with a kid with pica who put things in his mouth that he wasn't supposed to. And that was a safety concern all unto itself. But now suppose that that child had 
gotten an infection from his older siblings, both of whom are school age. And then he brings that infection into his classroom and bites every toy that's out. And then another kid touches it before I can sweep them all up. Like what is supposed to happen? And my school didn't have an answer that they thought was safe. Yes. And that is part of why we have no good yet. I mean, I think that we also need to really give space to the socioeconomic and racial barriers and issues that come along with thinking about schooling in the traditional model. And by traditional, I mean in person, because what we know based on our students, especially those of color, especially black and brown students, is that a lot of times when we are thinking about coming back, we're only looking at this pandemic from a medical standpoint, but we're also facing a pandemic of racism, right? We've seen this really highlighted through the senseless murders and police brutality that have happened over the course of the past few weeks. And as we think about you know, the safety of our children, What I'm really concerned about is that I know for my students, a lot of their families don't and didn't have the luxury of quarantining. They still had to go to work. So if we are sending kids back home, a lot of our students also are living in multi-generational family settings. So you've got grandma, you've got aunt, you've got uncle, and a lot of cases, even great grandma or, you know, just family members who are elderly who are staying with them and providing care while their (laughs) parents can go to work and afford to put food on the table, right? So we just really need to keep in mind all of the, not only racial disparities that come along with access to healthcare, but also we need to be prepared as a school system because we found that honestly, we are the social safety net for children. We're where they get food, we're where they get education. In a lot of places, we're where they get counseling, we're where they get clothing. And if we are not taking all of those things into consideration while we are reopening, not to mention all of the socio-emotional things that come along with you know, potentially having to wear masks in the classroom or not being able to have consistent contact with your teacher, those types of things have much more negative effects on communities of color than they do on their white counterparts. And if we don't have a clear and consistent plan for how we're going to address those disparities, the opportunity gap is just going to continue to widen, especially in these large metropolitan cities like Seattle, LA, which is our already had the courage to cancel school, and especially in New York. It's so hard, too, because especially on the question of these particular disparities, it seems like that problem cuts both ways in the question of whether you want to try to take a bunch of risks and open up school anyways, or you want to cut your losses and make sure that school is closed for safety reasons, right? Because to do the latter, you're cutting that safety net for all of those kids who depend on school for those, you know, life-giving things. But at the same time, you're exposing them to a much greater level of risk, which is then transmitted right down the line to those families they live with, the ones who maybe can't afford to quarantine in the way that white families can. It seems to me that no one has been able to quantify, you know, either through research or even through argument, what the answer is for how to best serve students who both need school and are most threatened by in-person school yeah. right now. That's not really a question. That's just me <laughs> expressing my, yeah. my honest. That's the work. So this is maybe a simple question, and I apologize for it being a little bit blunt, but I think it's useful for people to hear this. The four of you, teachers who to some extent may be in a classroom sometime in the next six months, are you afraid for your own health? Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. And I mean, we have health insurance. <laughs> like, that's yeah. the real rub. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I think that, because again, I get to see it from both sides, right? Being a board member and an educator, 
the way that we are having these conversations, it's all theoretical, right? But when it gets down to the actual implementation of it, these plans fall apart. And a lot of the documents that I see, not only regarding PPE, especially, and I can tell you right now, districts are going to fight tooth and nail not to provide the adequate PPE needed to do our job effectively. Because we're talking face masks, probably, and not just face masks, I'm talking like the shields, like plastic ones, or at the very least, providing N95 masks for every teacher, multiple ones a day. And I can only imagine how many times I'm going to hear about my students like saying like, so-and-so's got my mask, so-and-so put my mask in his or her mouth. Like those things are gonna get all mixed up and I'm not gonna facilitate as a teacher. I'm not putting my hands anywhere near that. And our school doesn't provide Germex or any type of hand sanitizer. We have soap and water, but some schools don't even have sinks. I think too, depending a lot on your grade levels, before I taught preschool, I taught middle school and I loved my middle schoolers dearly, but they were always like like licking each other or like, sticking their fingers in each other's ears or, you know, like dumb kid things. And then on the flip side, I went from that to my preschool where I I walked out to the playground. I like lean over to see what some kid that I didn't quite have my eyes on was doing. And she's sucking on another kid's finger in the corner of the playground. And I'm thinking like middle schoolers (laughs) do that too. (laughs) Yeah. Like in what scenario are you, are you going to keep kids from spreading normal germs, setting aside the fact that we're not going to have masks. And if, even if you do get them, parents are going to complain or you can't get the preschoolers to wear them or whatever. Like, I mean, even with the masks on, if they're sticking each other's masks in their mouths, you've defeated the purpose of the mask. You've gotten it wet, which makes it less effective. You've spread the germ. Like, it's just, it's not practical. Like, I'm lucky the school that I worked with had the administration that was brave enough to tell us to our faces, like, we don't think it's feasible because I think a lot of schools are going to pretend that, oh, well, you know, I think if you guys just keep them from licking each other, it'll be fine. But if we could keep them from licking each other, we would have by now. <laughs> the students, I think, that concern me the most and my own children who I worry about the most. And frankly, my wife, who's a kindergarten teacher, I worry about her a great deal because kids come to kindergarten and they're crying on the first day of school. And the only way you get them to stop crying is you hug them. And my wife is trying to figure out what is she going to do to crying children who are leaving their parents for the first time. And you say, please stay six feet away. I'm behind some plastic. And so are you stand over there and cry. (laughs) But I do think as teachers, one of the things we do have to really remember is there are a lot of people doing this work already in dangerous circumstances. So while I think it's fine for us to be afraid and angry, I just remind myself that that lady at the grocery store today who checked me out, she is putting herself at risk in the same way I might be putting myself at risk. And I'm not happy about it, but I tend to try to focus on the safety of kids, which I think is going to be a disaster in many ways for all the reasons we've described. All right, everyone, let's take a quick break. You guys drink some water. I've got some business to discuss with Slate listeners. If you are missing Jamila on today's show, you are in luck because you can get your Jamila dose tonight. Thursday, July 16th at 7 o'clock Pacific time, 10 o'clock Eastern, is the world premiere of Jamila's brand new Slate Live show. It's called The Kids Are Asleep. Tonight she'll be talking with comedian Roy Wood Jr., but every week she's going to have a new guest talking about parenting, talking about what real life is really like, talking about the news, talking about substance abuse, I assume. It's going to be insightful, funny. You definitely shouldn't miss it. It premieres tonight, Thursday, July 16th at 7 o'clock Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. To catch it, go to Slate's Facebook page, and we'll also put links in our episode notes. It's called The Kids Are Asleep. It's going to be so good. Catch it. 
While you're on Facebook, you should also take a second to join our active, moderated parenting community filled with people giving and receiving parenting advice. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. It's a great bunch of folks, and the ones who aren't great, we ban. To stay up to date on all of Slate's parenting content and shows, sign up for Slate's parenting newsletter. It's the best place to be notified about all our parenting stuff, including care and feeding, mom and dad are fighting, and much, much more. Plus, you know, it's just a fun personal email from me directly to your inbox. Sign up at slate.com slash parenting email. In Slate Plus today, we'll have some triumphs and fails for those of you who missed them. Me and the great Ms. Scott, Amy Scott, will be triumphing and failing together. Here's a quick sneak peek of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. So I've just been feeding my children spoiled food for an untold number of months and also ripping off a fine local company, South Mountain Creamery. You have some repenting to do. I do, I do. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. It's just 35 bucks for your first year. More importantly, it is a great way to support all your favorite Slate podcasts. You won't hit a paywall on the site on Slate.com, so you can keep up with all our journalism on every platform. So please, support Mom and Dad are fighting. Make sure I keep my job. Go to Slate.com slash Mom and Dad Plus and join Slate Plus today. Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, back to our roundtable. Many of you have brought up how all these plans are theoretical and we're going to see breakdowns in them. And it sort of seems to me that the breakdowns are happening even now as plans are in theoretical form. And so the example I give is here where I live in Arlington. A few weeks ago, the district announced what the plan was, and it was the A-B plan, basically. But parents had a choice. You could choose between the A-B plan, where your kid has two days in school and three days at home, or you could choose full-time distance learning. Mm -hmm. And then about an hour ago today, Tuesday, a brand new email went out from the superintendent saying, basically, nope, we changed it. School is going to be all virtual for everyone, at least for first quarter. 
They didn't say why, but my hunch based on what I have heard from teachers around here and people associated with education, both here and in Fairfax County, is that it has to have had something to do with the huge gulf between the number of parents who wanted their kids to go to school and the number of teachers who felt safe going into that school environment because they asked all the teachers, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to teach remotely or do you want to go into class? Are you all seeing this kind of disparity between parents' expectations or needs and teachers' expectations or needs in the places where you teach? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. What's really, really interesting is that as a union member, from the first day that I stepped into a classroom, we've been advocating this just for folks to come see what it's like to be a teacher, especially in an elementary classroom nowadays. And then to have to fight tooth and nail for pay raises to just get to a living wage. And now that we have a situation to where kids are at home and parents are having to step into that role as basically support educators, in a lot of cases, primary educators in terms of academics, we're hearing that narrative change a little bit, right? Because you're getting a full scope of what a teacher does, not only in instance of caring for your child, but 30 other children as well. And so what we're starting to see is that while there is this parent push to get back into school in some way, again, this goes back to what we talked about previously, we as teachers know that that is not safe. <laughs> it is just literally not safe because we see it on a day-to-day -day basis. And I don't know how we're going to thread that needle between parent expectations and good policy, especially in terms of healthcare. But I think that your district did the right thing, Dan. I think that your district realized that, you know, for our workforce, this is not the best move, especially seeing how many cases are beginning to pop up across the country at alarming rates. I have a concern too about teaching in a different district from or my kids are, are those plans going to align? You know, right now, the district where my kids are supposed to go, they're going to go back tentatively in late August, and I'm going to have 30 days of remote. But then let's say that that district shuts down and mine doesn't, then what do I do? You know, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that doesn't happen. There will be teachers who just say, I'm out. Or there will be teachers who say, my district is sending my kids back. I'm not sending my kids back. So I'm going to stay home and homeschool my kids this year. You know, have a nice time. And frankly, if teachers do that, I don't think there's going to be any concern that there won't be jobs next year for them. There's going to be plenty of teaching jobs coming up in the coming years based upon what is happening now. So if you want to take a year off and homeschool your own children, teachers are going to do that. We're going to be short-staffed in many, many circumstances. Don't even start to think about substitute teachers. Can you imagine oh, no. the situation when a teacher gets sick? Because as soon as you have the sniffles in COVID, you can't like muscle through. You can't say, I got a cold, but I'm going to go to school. If you have anything, you can't go to school anymore. And just the dearth of substitute teachers alone is going to, is going to collapse the system. And what they pay substitutes. I can't imagine being a substitute and being like, yeah, I'm going to risk my life for you know, what is it, 80 bucks a day or something? It's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. yeah. And my is immunocompromised. He has Down syndrome and he was in the hospital for his first seven and a half months. And so, you know, when he gets a cold, it lasts three weeks. And so I have that concern. And if I had the finances, I would take the year off and homeschool my kids if that was, you know, finances were no issue. I've seen a lot of chatter on my, you know, very North Arlington, very white, very upper middle class Facebook feed that what middle and upper class parents should do right now, if they have the choice, 
is to not send your kids to school. If you have the choice between sending your kids and not sending your kids, you should not send your kids to school. Pick the all-distance option, create a homeschooling pod if you need to for a year, ease the pressure on the system so that lower-income kids have more access to the resources they need, including if they need it in-person learning. What do you guys think of that idea? I think that's racist as fuck. Mm. Like, honestly, we've just actually received emails around that, right? Because we have these 13 schools where our high African-American populations that we focus on as a district in Seattle in terms of policy and resources to boost those schools up. And folks are saying like, well, why don't you just keep those schools open and send the kids who are experiencing homelessness, the special education kids, X, Y, and Z, all of the kids who have either high ACEs or generational trauma or are not white to those schools to get in-person learning. So what you're saying is you want us to create a COVID hotbed that only the students that are experiencing the most trauma will have access to. And that's the exact type of policy recommendations that you know, we as educators and policymakers need to be really wary of because on the surface to a parent who identifies as that, that sounds like a great idea. I'll keep my kid home. I'll homeschool them. And then that frees up resources for everybody else. When actually collectively, we need to be uniting our voices and demanding a system that best serves all students, regardless of if you have the resources to choose a different one or not. Yeah, it it makes you feel good. (laughs) Like, I can keep my kids home and save the world. (laughs) Meanwhile, you know, over at that school, all the teachers are sick and three kids have died. But I saved the world by keeping my kids at home. (laughs) Brandon, you're on the school board in Seattle. Let's say the DOE suddenly did an about face and just was like, we are going to throw $10 billion at the problem of opening schools up. How would you want to spend it? What could we do with money that would increase safety to any kind of acceptable level? Yeah, what they need to do is support efforts for municipal broadband. We need a device for every student. We need adequate and real rigorous professional development as educators to provide distance learning. We need a communications specialist for every district so that for the kids who, for whatever reason, have not been as engaged in distance learning, we can actually reach their families and get them plugged in. There are so many things that we could ask for, but I haven't been asked. (laughs) So like, that's the thing. It really begs the question, what is the commitment to public education for this specific administration and the DOE. And really what I honestly think is that this is a bait and switch to try to get people to go into the charter schools, frankly, as a public educator. I, I think that this is just an opportunity for people to divest from the public education system, which is, <laughs> in terms of austerity, really benefits the federal government. But in all actuality, we should be looking at this approach from a completely different way and think about knowing that we as districts are that social safety net for students, how can we bolster that safety net instead of just filling up the safety net and just knowing eventually that the bottom is going to fall out from under it? So I think that we as not only municipalities, but especially the federal government really needs to be going directly to educators, school board directors, teachers unions and asking, okay, how do we make distance learning work well, instead of just trying to shoehorn people into buildings and putting their health at risk? Yeah, I'll add that, you know, when I think about this problem, I always tell people, let us remember it is a short term problem. Like, realistically, next September, you know, September of 2021, things are going to be back to normal. So we're looking at one school year. And we sort of have a choice of 
hodgepodging a school year into a school which will probably result in the death of children and teachers. Or, like what Brandon said, if we actually invested in things like one device per child and broadband across a municipality, that would actually have long-term consequences beyond the one year that we're trying to get through. Yes, I can speak for like the one-to-one device school versus not because I came from one that did not have adequate technology. I'm in one now that does. It makes a huge difference as a teacher. Like it makes a huge difference for students. It makes a huge difference for me in terms of what I'm able to accomplish during the day. I don't have to make as many copies. I have quizzes graded for me, that kind of thing. There's a lot to say for getting kids technology, but it's not enough in the district where my kids are zoned they're doing the one-to-one device for the kids. They've ordered all these Chromebooks, but are they going to be here in time, first of all, for the school year to start? Mm-hmm. And the district ordered all these laptops, but didn't add any additional staff to inventory them, to label them, to distribute them. So far, they haven't had sufficient professional development on like Canvas, the system that they're using. It's like, oh, okay, we'll just get laptops and that'll solve the problem. But there's so many layers that underneath that that need to be addressed. The professional development piece is so important because you could give every person in the country a Chromebook, but if you don't teach teachers what tools they have and how to use those tools to best reach students, it's not going to matter. Cassie, if my child has an IEP or otherwise benefits from special education in some way, what is this coming year going to look like for them? And how should parents be thinking about the role that special education can and should be playing in a mostly distance learning scenario? Yikes. Um, That's how your year is going to look. Yikes. (laughs) Uh, I told all of my parents toward the end of the year when they were starting to get anxious, AEPs started coming out from school districts for next year. And parents were reading them and they were saying, well, my kid can't do these things anymore. That's the things that their IEP said that they could do when I wrote it in January. They can no longer even do those things. They're no longer performing those skills. They're no longer looking me in the eye. Depending on what your district is doing and also depending on the age of your kid, the success of distance therapy is pretty variable. I have a half brother. He's 11 years old and he receives special education services. And I asked him, how's that going? Because I was curious. And he said, speech is okay, but I don't like OT because she can't actually help me. And I was like yeah, probably not. You're probably right. You know, his occupational therapist is working on handwriting with him. She's doing positioning with his hand. She does lots of physical stuff. And she can't sit there and reposition his fingers into the proper pen grip if she's on a computer. But on the other hand, you know, if you talk about like speech therapy for high schoolers, it's a totally different story because speech therapy with high schoolers is mostly working on like grammar and language skills, writing skills, persuasive writing, especially. And that's something you probably can do over Zoom, right? You could share the screen, you could talk through what they're saying, especially if it's a highly verbal child, someone who can really articulate their ideas verbally, but has a hard time expressing them in writing, maybe, then you can actually work with that. That's something that I feel like you could probably effectively do. Reading depends on their skill level, hit or miss. Math, same thing. Physical therapy and occupational therapy, I think it's kind of going to be a toss up. If you're lucky, Maybe you can work on some of those skills, but I think for a lot of those kids, the IEPs that were written before the quarantine started are just meaningless. If the district lets you, you can physically scrap the document and start over. If they don't, you're just going to have to know in your heart, like your teachers are doing what they can, but the document they wrote under the assumption that they could be there in person to provide therapy and they can't, like that's just not going to be a realistic goal to set for yourself. And the point of an IEP is to be a realistically meetable goal. To broaden this question a little bit, the thing that faces students who depend on special education in some way or form is the fact, as Cassie says, that 
teachers just aren't going to be able to accomplish the things that they could accomplish before. The four of you, are you all seeing as people start to talk about what the school year is going to look like, any kind of relaxation or any reduction of some of the official demands on teachers befitting these extraordinary times? Do you have to fill out less paperwork? Do you have to attend fewer (laughs) meetings? Is anything changing on the back end? The faces you guys are making right now are incredible. I wish our listeners could see them. I want you to just go ahead and answer. I'm actually feeling lucky based upon these faces because my <laughs> district has done a very good job. You know, they immediately ended teacher evaluation for the year, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen next year. There's no point in evaluating teachers. And conversations that I've had with school board members and administrators have said that this is going to be a year when we focus on the safety of children, the emotional health of children, and then learning will come with as much learning as we can manage. Statewide testing is probably still not going to happen this year. And so our focus is really on health and emotional well-being. And then, you know, when we can sprinkle some actual education into there, I mean, that's our ultimate goal. Again, my school is not, nothing's nailed down yet. But at the end of the year, I think I did as good a job as as I could have done with the time and the professional development that I had. And since I do so much stuff online, when we have the devices at my school, it wasn't easy, but it was much easier than it probably was for other teachers for me to convert to an online model. But it's going to be very difficult, especially if my kids are home. Like if my kids, my two five-year-olds do not go to somewhere else for kindergarten, my Zoom classes are going to be a lot of dealing with, you know, my brother's peeing outside or whatever. No, it's true. My my kids got to know my class really quickly. Like my kids can <laughs> yeah. tell you every member of my class from last year. Matt, you alluded to this a little bit earlier. Do you all think that we are going to see like a mass exodus from teaching in the coming year? Do you think people are bailing? I think that this is an opportunity for people who are on the back end of their teaching career to retire. If I was 55 to 65 and I was looking at a school year like the one that's coming and I was being sent to school, I might just say, I will take my retirement now. Thank you very much and move on. Frankly, I also believe that if we move forward with, you know, jamming people into schools and not having plans and PPE and all these things, there's just going to be people who die and those people are going to have to be replaced too. But I think between early retirements and between just losing teachers in tragic circumstances, I do think there's going to be the opportunity for jobs in the future. And frankly, I don't know if it's going to hold, but I think parents, at least what I have heard, have begun to recognize the work we do. You know, I cannot tell you how many parents tell me, my God, I can't believe you do this with 24 of them because I hate my kid right now and I don't know how to teach them. (laughs) So... I'm hopeful that perhaps a a tiny, tiny silver lining from this will be that teachers will um, earn some respect in in this process. And and that would be a nice thing, too. I don't know. I think teaching for a lot of folks is probably one of the safer positions. I have constant conversations with my fiance about how lucky we are to still have jobs at this moment because so many people don't. I'm very blessed to work in a union state. And so our union has been great about representing us and fighting for the things that we need. But I'm also a child of the South. I'm originally from Mississippi. And the approach to how to work with educators is very different, as you can imagine, than it is in Washington State. 
So I think that it's a little bit up in the air. I think that what Matthew suggested is true. I know a few teachers in my building who are taking an early retirement and chucking up the deuces and calling it good. I know others who are actively applying for jobs and receiving jobs right now to fill those positions because of the nature of their previous positions, right? And so it's kind of going to be a mixed bag. I think that we're going to lose a lot of institutional knowledge around the field, but I also think that we're going to get a lot of young people who are really, really excited to get into the classroom and kind of repair a lot of the harm that has been done, not only from this pandemic, but from our racist school system in the aim of truly reimagining what school looks like. So I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm friends with a lot of other teachers on Facebook or on social media. My sister's a teacher. A lot of her friends are teachers. I have all my friends from grad school. I haven't seen anybody close to my own age who is doing anything but getting angry and advocating for the best thing for their school. I haven't seen anybody young who's like, I forget this, I'm out, uh, which I think is really a testament to the emotional strength of those teachers because there are days that I have felt like, forget this, I'm out. Um, And I haven't made that choice either, but I am amazed at all of them. It is scary to think that, you know, like all these amazing educators that I know, and I know more than a hundred in New York state and the death rate in New York state is about 1%. So one of them is going to die. And that's really scary because that's a person who loves their job and cares about students and cares about learning and education. And to lose any one of them would be an incredible disservice and tragedy. What can parents do? What should parents do to make your jobs easier and safer? Buy us in 95 masks. <laughs> Donate them to the school. That's a pretty good suggestion. I would say that if we're going back in any kind of in real life setting, you got to keep your kid home if your kid is sick and you got to let us know that your kid is sick. Uh, do not send your child to school when they're sick. The teachers will not be coming to school when they're sick. We're going to protect kids by staying home. So don't send your kid to school when they're sick, no matter what. Find a way to keep them at home. I mean, I think the only answer to me is don't leave the house until then. Like everybody go back into a full lockdown. If you want us to reopen in September, then Mm. you cannot leave your house from now until September. That's it. Like order your groceries or do curbside pickup or do what you got to do to like keep alive. But if you want schools to reopen, then we are back to a full shutdown until that happens. True. What's the best case scenario for your school and your job as a teacher in 2020? I'll say for me, I mean, ultimately, I want to be with my kids as much as I don't want to be with my kids because of COVID. I think in a perfect circumstance, because I'm in Connecticut and our infection rate is very, very low. If it stayed low like it is now and every teacher had an N95 mask and every kid was masked, you know, my perfect scenario would be a school year where I get to be with my kids in a very safe environment. I just always want to think about the idea that people say, you know, when the infection rate goes up, then we'll quarantine. But when you say when the infection rate goes up, what that really means is when some people died, that's when we will quarantine. We always casually say when the infection rate goes up, but that just means people died. And then we decided to quarantine. You can sort of never get ahead of it. So in a perfect world, I have everything I need to be safe. My kids have everything they need to be safe. Uh, That's the ideal circumstance for me. I just don't know if that's going to be entirely possible. Ideally, again, I, I do my best teaching in person, obviously. And I, like Matt, would love to be in the classroom with my kids. With the North Carolina infection rate still going up, I don't think it's safe. 
And until it goes down, until we have a vaccine, until we're clear, I would advocate for full online education. Cassie? I would love it if we could open in a way that was safe. I would love if there was some kind of scenario where we could have them even like once or twice a week just to come to the school just for a couple hours to be outside with their peers and I don't know, like do an activity outdoors or something. But at the same time, like I know that that's not really safe either. So I think in my perfect, perfect world, we would find some way to protect children so that we could have some kind of in-person interaction, whether that's school or something else, and then supplement the school with online. But also in my perfect, perfect world, we'd be able to wait until there was a vaccine and until it was fully safe. A lot of um, places, including Seattle, are considering models. And I think that in so many ways, outdoor school, if your community can support it, is is critical, right? Because it hits on so many things. It allows us to build closer partnerships with our community-based organizations who often have closer relationships with our students than we do. It allows us to actually socially distance ourselves in some meaningful way. It takes kids out of these institutionally racist buildings and gives them the opportunity to engage with curriculum in the way that we as human beings have been doing since our beginnings (laughs) as a species is educating ourselves outside, right? And so... Just thinking again, so many folks are having these conversations about reimagining schools. And I really want us to be pushing ourselves to think about that more deeply than just the opportunity to get on a Zoom with an elected official or somebody who's big in the industry or just upload it to Facebook or Instagram or whatever for the sake of having the conversation and really do the hard work of thinking like, if we are going to reimagine the system, if we are looking at this as an opportunity that needs seizing, then we can't approach this with the same models and the same skill sets that we've been doing this so poorly for quite frankly for the past several hundred years right like if we are seriously about rethinking and reimagining our school system then we have to do it and an ab model isn't going to do that going back to what we were doing before isn't going to do that if we don't take bold action right now like matthew and others have been saying throughout the call, people will die, children will die. And I really need superintendents, school boards, elected officials, parents. I I really need all of the folks who are pushing us to go back to really take into consideration how many are you with, how many people, how many students, how many children, how many babies are you willing to lose to try something that we know is a really, really bad idea. All right. Thank you all so much. We have some hard questions. We have some hard answers. None of us really know what's going to happen, but I feel a lot better knowing that teachers like you are in charge of taking care of our kids. Thank you so much. You can read more wise advice from Matt, Brandon, Cassie, and Amy in Slate's Ask a Teacher column. It publishes every Thursday on Slate.com. Thanks again to all of you for joining us today. Thank you, everyone. This was great. All right. Before we go, the show isn't over. We got a recommendation just for me this time. Jamila and Elizabeth recommend taking a week off. They love it. Our oven door broke last week. You'll learn more about this in Slate Plus. But anyways, we can't bake anything. So I've been feeling very dessert bereft because we can't bake any pies or cakes or cookies or anything. Harper is a great baker. Ollie is a great baker. I'm a great eater of bakery. But then... 
Alia made a huge batch of banana pudding with Nilla wafers, and it is the only thing I want to eat now. I've eaten it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for two days straight. So my recommendation to you, dear listener, banana pudding. It's a classic Southern hot weather dessert. Make it, eat it, live it, love it. Banana pudding. All right, that's our show. Fear not, Jamila and Elizabeth will be joining me next week for a totally normal show, but we need your totally abnormal questions for that to happen. So please send us your questions. Email us at slate.com or post them to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. Either way, we want questions from you so my two compatriots can join us and give you the great answers you deserve. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Amy Scott, Matthew Dix, Cassie Sarnell, and Brandon Hersey, I'm Dan Coyce. Catch you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.